Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 52. Make sure that they understand their market and who they're selling to. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. On today's episode, we have Brian Alexander, the Red Hills rancher from the Ranching Reboot podcast. We talk about his cattle, his land, what they're doing there, and we go on a few tangents I think you'll enjoy. Then we also talk about hip camp and land trust before we end with the final four. So I think you'll enjoy it. Before we talk to Brian, let's do 10 seconds about my farm. And this week, I, I have a favor to ask of you. We are in the middle, nah, more towards the end of lambing. We still have about 20 used to lamp, but otherwise we're wrapping it up. But my question for you is how do you manage your ewes and lambs during lambing? We've done it a variety of ways. However, this year I felt like we've had more orphan lambs than we usually do. So could you hop over to the grazing grass community and let me know how you manage your lambs and ewes during lambing? I'll post more information about what we're doing. And I'm open to suggestions as well as hearing about what you're doing. But enough about me. Let's talk to Brian. Brian, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're joining us. Well, thanks for having me here, Cal. It's a, you know, unexpected pleasure to meet another podcaster and be invited to another show. It always is. I, I enjoy talking to other podcasters, find out where their, their pain points are and their successes. You know, we're all in this with a common goal. So yeah, Brian, sure. tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation. Well, um, I'm 44. I live in South Central Kansas, Southwest Kansas, a little place called Sun City. The ranch is about six miles south down by Deerhead. Been here pretty much my whole life. Um, dad got a hold of the upper, dad got a hold of the ranch and, and took over operations in 1984. Um, so I kind of grew up out there on the ranch. Um, I came, I joined the Navy after high school and spent about eight and a half years in the Navy. Moved back and decided that uh, ranching is kind of what I wanted to do. And um, that was in 2006. And I started, I kind of went out on my own and started my grazing business in 2008 and took over one cell of the ranch. And uh, ever since then, just been taking over more and doing more and adding to what dad has done. Very good. When we jump back to your dad in 1984 and taking that over, are you using the same practices he used? Uh, no, it, it's been a long evolution of practices. So when he took it over in 84, he would describe it as a, uh, an overgrazed underwatered cedar forest without any water, basically. Um, and he, he came into, let's just say operator ship of the ranch, um, through a complex system of family estates. My grandmother was still alive at that time. And that's, you know, through my grandmother, his mother is who he had kind of the, the tide of the land. And 
she had a little bit of money from maybe some oil or some, you know, the, the estate settlement. And instead of buying cows, he decided that he was going to buy a, a cedar saw and cut all the trees on the ranch because he, he figured he, he wanted to see what he had so we could understand it. So he got this, uh, cedar saw from down a gentleman named John Myers down Oakwood, Oklahoma. And this was like 1985, 86. I mean, not a very, I mean, it was advanced for the time, but it was something a guy built in his shed. Okay. Um, so there was a lot of development work on that machine, a lot of hours, lots and lots of hours on that machine. And they cut all the trees off the ridge tops, off all the hillsides that they could reach. And from 19, let's just say 1986 to 2006, the entire ranch had been burned at least seven times. So we here on the plains, we also recognize that there's a need for the need for fire, not only to reset the grass, but also to control these, you know, invasive trees and, and vegetation that's coming in. And my dad, several other folks around were some of the first people around, um, to practice prescribed fire in this area. Um, so dealing with the trees, um, uh, after he dealt with the trees, he kind of, you know, understood a little more what he had. He started learning about grasses, went to ranching for profit a couple of times, took advantage of some government programs to start doing some cross fencing on the ranch because at the time it was, it was basically three big pastures. So we had a, you know, a West cell, a corral cell and the South cell, and they're oh, all yes. kind of fairly similar size. And, um, it was in the late eighties, early nineties. I think he got a contract through, um, I think it was called a Great Plains contract through the Soil Conservation Service then to do some cross fencing and everything was broken up. Like the two big ones on the north side of the highway were broken up into four. And I forget how many he broke the south side up into. Maybe it was like six. Um, but that was that was the start. And then for a while, you know, he just did some, you know, rotation grazing, which is, you know, well, they're here a month, they're there a month. And, Hell yes. and then they're kind of gone. And as the years went through, um, he's been ranching for profit a total of three times and, you know, spent a lot of time involved with grazing groups and, and doing advocacy. And he, he learned that, well, the paddocks need to be smaller. We need to do water. So he's taken advantage of, uh, you know, NRCS programs, equip and CSP and things like that to develop water sources on the ranch. Um, we pump a lot of water with solar wells because it's not practical to run a power line, you know, half a mile across country just to run a water pump you know power company wants you to pay for all those new poles which is it's really really expensive uh yes so it it was a lot cheaper even even in early 2000s to come in and like build a solar system that's just going to pump water during the day and learned a lot through the course of that um about you know the difference between storage and, and stock tank and the size ratio and what things need to be. Uh, so when I showed up in 2006, you know, it was, it was kind of a fairly well-tuned operation. I mean, there was like oh, 14 paddocks on the South side of the ranch, 18 in, 18 in the corral cell and, you know, several over on the West cell. And since then we, you know, there's been things that have adjusted. We, we put in a new watering system, two new watering systems in 2008. Um, We've done some work down on the south side, expanding capacity down there, converted an old windmill, an old windmill that was just at end of life and needed, needed either major, major repairs or overhaul. 
or we just decided, well, we'll just pull that windmill out, lay the tower down and drop a solar pump down there and throw a couple panels up and be done with it forever. Um, so that's what we did. We had that tied in kind of a creative way on pressure switches to where we've got a, a dual system. When the sun's shining, we're going to be running on solar. And when the sun's not shining, there's a grid tied pump a mile away from that solar pump that's going to kick in and, and carry the load. But it's, it's kind of inconvenient when we have a leak because when we have a leak, both pumps are on it. There's water. Oh, yes. Just about your, your area there. Um, I, I'm not sure I've been through your part of Kansas where you are. We typically go, I'm in Northeast Oklahoma, but my grandparents moved to this area from the Texas panhandle. So we go out there for uh, family reunions and stuff. So I'm assuming some of the same with, um, maybe a little bit more water than they have out there, but maybe uh, not much more. Well, <laughs> with, with the weather we've had for the last, I don't know, basically three years, there's not a whole lot of water anywhere here or in the Texas panhandle. Well, uh, that is true. Yes. Never really having spent a lot of time in the Texas panhandle, which, you know, it's, it's just right there. I would think that it's, it's a fairly similar, fairly similar topography, geography, uh, you know, and, and make up in the native range. If you ask Kansas state, it's short grass prairie. If you ask me, it's mixed to tall grass prairie. Cause yes. when you can grow six foot tall, big blue stem and Indian grass, I, I, I would hesitate to call that short grass. <laughs> right. But, yes. You know, um, but it, it's also kind of fair to say that where I am in Kansas has a lot more in common with Northwest Oklahoma and the Texas panhandle than any, than any other part of the world. Oh, yes. Yes. We call it the Red Hills, which is why I go by Red Hills Rancher on social media, because it's, you know, kind of called back my heritage to this area. Um, rolling hills, I mean, fairly steep terrain. Some of our hillsides are, you know, 30 to 35 degrees. Very difficult to oh, walk yes. up. I mean, almost as steep as you'll find anything in Colorado. They're just not very tall. Oh, yes. yes. We'll have places, uh, there are places on the ranch where, you know, I could throw you a can of Coke or baseball back and forth, but if I wanted to shake your hand, we'd have to walk about a half a mile all the way down and around a, a canyon. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and that reminds me of my, my um, second cousin's back porch. You're looking out there, you could toss things back and forth, but there's no way you're walking straight across to them. Sounds pretty familiar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I just wanted to to get that placement there just a little bit. When you talk about you're talking about your wells, do you have a good pretty good water table out there for your wells to work consistently? Yes, we do. It's just not an incredibly productive water layer. Um like a good water well here on the ranch would be somewhere between ten and fifteen gallons of water a minute. That would be, that would be a really good well for me. Um, we've bailed a couple of them, you know, close to 20, 25 gallons a minute in that range. How long they'd sustain that, I don't know. But, you know, we can at least, the last couple that we've developed on the ranch, we've bailed at 20 plus gallons a minute. Oh, yes. Yeah. But, you know, we try to throttle that down. I mean, it's, it's a resource that's not going to be here forever unless we take care of it. Very, very true. Yeah, and you you guys are pretty dry right now. I was looking at the drought mount map for Oklahoma, 
um, just this morning in that I-44 corridor going through Oklahoma is the dividing line between wet and dry, basically, right now. And you're you're on the dry side. Yeah. Uh, like I kind of alluded to a few minutes ago, it really, it, we've been in a rain deficit for 30 months. And it's not just a, you know, rain through the year. You know, for us in the grass business, where I am, rain in June, July, or I'm sorry, April, May, June. April, May, June, that's going to grow the bulk of my grass. And I have 30 years of rain records. My dad has 30 years of rain records all on one sheet of paper that I can look at month by month, year by year. Oh, yes. And, you know, if you just kind of go down to the bottom and look at the, you know, the, the averages, the min, the max, the average. Okay. I'm going to have to do this off memory because I don't have this. I don't have these notes in front of me. The least amount of rain that we've ever gotten in that 30-year period from 1986 to 2016 during April, May, June was 2.42 inches. Normal, okay? Well, normal is a setting on a dryer. Average, let's just say that the 30-year yeah. average of rain during that 90 days is going to be 10 inches. Now, I will grow something like 200 pounds of grass per acre per inch fall of rain. Okay, if I could get 10 inches of rain, I'll be fine. Oh, yes. Then I, can, then I can graze half of that. Then I can graze 1,000 pounds per acre, which sets me up great. If I get something like two and a half inches of rain, which is the least amount that has ever been recorded in a consecutive 90-day period, April 1 to, to June 30th, 2.42 inches of rain is kind of like the low, horrible worst-case scenario. Two and a half inches of rain is only going to grow up. 500 pounds of grass per acre. And that means that there's just, that means I don't have enough grass. That means I'm overstocked right. yeah. for like 220 animal units. So it's, we're at the point now where all the cuts that I've made in stocking rate and strategies I've used over the last two and a half, three years to minimize, you know, drought and stockpile of grass. That's all I've got to eat for the next couple of months. I'm just, we're just, we're kind of in a situation where it's getting, um, I'm having to make, I'm having to get creative to try to figure out how to graze grass with enough cows this year to stay in business. Let's put it that way. Which is not a fun place to be. If it was easy, Cal, everybody'd be doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're exactly right. <laughs> so what are some things you've done to um, negate that drought issue or the lack of forage? Well, minimizing drought risk, you know, it, it's got to be part of your long-term ranch management plan. You know, continuing to develop water sources, making sure that I've got great water sources and not have to depend on creeks and ponds. Okay. Dad said for a lot of years that he probably wouldn't go back and build, but maybe two or three of the 14 ponds that are on the ranch. And those would just be for access. And he might build one or two in a different spot. And he would, and he would rather have the money that was spent on all the ponds been invested into more pumps, pipes, and tanks. So, oh, yes. You know, and I get that that might not work for everybody, but here, you know, those of us on the Southern Plains where we don't have to dig eight feet deep to put in a frost-free water line, yeah, you know, that's probably a better solution. 
you know, out farther west where the front range or out in the desert where you've got to have a hundred acres to run one cow, <laughs> five miles of water line might not be cost effective. I get it. So developing water, drought proofing water sources, making sure there's water available for cows, even in the worst times of the year, that's important. Subdividing the paddocks, you know, continuing to subdivide paddocks, try to drive paddock size smaller. So you can maximize your harvest efficiency when you put the cattle in that paddock. And that that's kind of the curve we're at right now is we're trying to get, we're trying to put, you know, get the cattle to perform the best that they can on the least amount of ground. So the rest of the ranch can rest and have, and have time to recovery and hopefully catch a rainfall. So continue to drive paddock size down, you know, then there's, there's a lot of other strategies. Um, go to one herd, go to one big herd instead of trying to, you know, scatter out, you know, three, four different ones. And that, that's a paradigm that I'm really working on this year is I'm trying to try to, I'm trying to figure out how to make that work with, with basically three different herds of cattle, three different owners trying to get everybody on the same page to where we can co-mingle as early as possible and get everybody on the same page with, all right, these are the bulls we're going to use. These are how we're going to share costs. And this is how we're going to share work. And this is what we're going to do. That's, um, I'm just starting to dip my toe in that. And probably, hopefully by the time this comes out, I'll be a little further down that road. Oh, yes. Yeah. But that's, that's just one plan that I'm trying to put together right now to, you know, to try to make sure I can, to try to stick around another year, try to fight again another year. So one thing you mentioned there, um, multiple herds, different owners. Tell us about the livestocks on your ranch. So just over three years ago, I bought my, I bought a herd of cows, first herd of cows that's been owned by my family for probably since the sixties, um, at least in Barber County. I've got some reasons for that. We can get into what I'm doing with those cows um, a little bit later. But ever since dad started on the ranch, like I mentioned, you know, the startup capital that he had and the choice that he made, he didn't, he didn't make the choice to buy cows. He made the choice to develop the resource that he had, which in hindsight, you know, was probably a correct decision. But on the other hand, he'd always, he had to learn how to make a business on land without owning livestock. So he developed a, a really good, robust custom grazing business, which he taught me and turned over to me. So I did custom grazing for other people for a lot of years. And that gave me some good opportunities, you know, namely to not work all winter and have to feed cows all winter, go break ice all winter, you know, that, <laughs> but it, it, it gave me opportunity to observe other people's cattle. And mm -hmm. I was fortunate to have several clients that have been willing to let me try things and be brave, you know, things like strip grazing at ultra high stock densities, you know, convince somebody like, let me take these cows in since you don't have anywhere for them to stand. Let me take them. I'll put them behind a hot wire and I'm going to move them every day. And they're basically going to be standing shoulder to shoulder. And he goes, well, they've never seen a hot fence. And I said, can I do it? And he says, you're welcome to try. If it doesn't <laughs> work, we'll come get them. Okay, fine. All right. It was, it was a week of pain getting Ed's Corrientes accustomed to hot wire and making them oh, stay yes. behind. And, but man, once, once taking a group of cattle that had never been behind a hot wire that had been literally in a 600 acre pasture for six months and been looked at three times, they were gathered, brought to my place and turned out onto basically two and a half acres at a time. Every day we were giving them like, I was giving them like two and a half acres. Was it painful? Yeah. 
some people call it painful. I, at the time it was a great learning experience and even looking back, it was a great learning experience. Had a lot of fun doing it. So when I took over the custom grazing business from my dad, he basically had one client and I didn't think that that was the greatest idea in the world. Cause you know, then you're dependent on them and they had a great relationship. They worked together for a lot of years. I worked with the same folks for quite a few years afterwards, but I, I think it was somewhere around 2010, 2011, I decided we're not going to have one client. We're going to have at least, we're going to have two, two or three, depending because that gives me more flexibility. That gives me more resilience. That gives me more diversification, right? So the situation I find myself in now is I don't have enough cows to fully stock any one of my grazing systems and they've outgrown to where I can just stash them in a corner and strip graze them all year. So I kind of am in the point where in order to effectively graze parts of the ranch, I've had to bring in somebody else to bring their cows in to combine with mine graze during the growing season. And now we're in a position where I think I need to combine two customer herds with my cows in order to make it through the year. So on those custom grazed cows, are they just coming to you for the growing season? Uh, some are. I've been mostly at a growing season operation. Um, but when I had uh, the first winter I had my, or the second winter I had my cows, it would, would have been the winter uh, 2021 and 2022. So just over like a year and a half ago. Um, yes. A friend of mine called me up. And I had just kind of gone through grass inventories and cash flow and a bunch of other work. And I was, I was wanting to maybe make a little bit more money that winter. And uh, just as it just so happened, a friend called me and he's like, Hey, you got any grass? I'm like, <laughs> glad you called, buddy. Do I have an opportunity for you? And uh, a week later, he shipped up a couple loads of cows. And other than, other than Cole and at PregCheck, that group of cows has been here for about a year and a half now. So are you running those with your herd? Uh, the ones I just talked about, no. Uh, yep. My herd is is by itself right now because my my co-mingled partner, he takes his home during the winter. Or he takes ho his home kind of in mid-fall because um, he likes to feed his a little harder than I like to feed mine. I don't like to feed mine a whole lot. <laughs> I I get that, yes. He'll come back probably probably in about another month we've been talking about uh that'll be first of may is first of may is generally when when everybody tries to go to grass here in the red hills oh um, okay you know like april 24th to may 8th is generally when almost everybody's turning out here hopefully hopefully we've got enough grass to turn out you know quote turn out on i say turn out like like mine haven't like my like mine haven't right they've been locked in a lot yeah, like mine have been locked in a lot. I've been feeding them bales all winter, right? Right. <laughs> no, it's just like it's right now. It's kind of a day by day. I've been rotating really, really slow, and yes, rotating really, really slow. And as soon as I start seeing the right signals from the forage, it's got sixth gear and mash the gas, and we're just going to try to make a quick lap so they can clip off, you know, just a couple hundred pounds out of each paddock, just the best couple hundred pounds of cool season. And then as soon as the warm season 
grass starts to starts to come in you know around the first of june first of the 15th of june we slam the brakes on and you know get down to more like a 60 60 to 90 day rest period rotation cycle what are some of those signals you're looking for in your grasses to spring into that fast rotation I'd like to see, I'd like to see at least 50 to 75% of my cool season grass awake and two to three inches of leaf on it. And we're, we're just not there yet. I don't know if we're waiting on temperature or if we're waiting on moisture right now, but we could use a little bit of both. I will have to concur there. We're in need of it as well, even though we're on the wetter side of, well, we're on the, the wet portion. We're right near I-44. We're same side of it as you, but we're still wet before it starts really drying off. But we missed the last rain that went by, and my grandpa always says, you never want to miss a rain. And I agree. We, we can always use the water. Um, but our grasses, just a little behind where we normally are. And I was hoping to be a little further along than we are. In fact, I've not got the growth so that I can start that faster rotation around the place. I'm still doing pretty slow trying to eke more time out. Do you think it's a temperature thing for you, or is it a rainfall thing? I, I, I think it's more of a rainfall, and we have had, our temperature's been pretty good. This coming week, temperatures look beautiful. We ought to have some nice growth jump up. But last, and, and I say, it's somewhat temperature, but not too much. Somewhat rain, not too much. It's a lot of management. We got really short last year, shorter than what I want to be going into winter. We had a dry fall. Um we destocked quite a bit, but we got drier than we had been in a long time. And it's taken a while to recoup that soil moisture and get it to the point we want it. And um, we took our grass lower than what we normally do during winter. So that's de or that's increasing the time it takes for it to gr to grow for us. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely something to that. I'm also a lot less scared of overgrazing during the dormant season and taking I, off, I agree. And taking yes. off that plant matter from last season. I'm not afraid. Right. I'm not afraid to do that because there's, there's not a whole lot of difference between that and a complete defoliation with like a fire or something. Right. Yes. You know, the, the yes. plant's going to still get the same signal. It's going to say, Hey, there's nothing up top. I need to put up solar panels and it's going to try like hell to put up solar panels. Yes. So the, the weather's improving just a little bit. I would love to get a little bit more rain. All my town friends are like, no more rain, but we could use some. Well, they can stay in town on their paved roads then. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, it's my vehicles that are covered in mud when we have rain. I've forgotten what mud looks like. <laughs> well, it's a different shade of red here. We have a nice dark mud. I take that back with all the dust storms, with all the dust and dirt that's been in the air for the last couple of months. We, we've got like oh, a couple yeah. showers. Like if we get a, like a, anything less than a half an inch, it doesn't wash dirt off of anything. It just turns it to mud and everything's just coated in mud. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. So when we, Jump back to your cows just a little bit. When you decided to buy some cows, what kind of cows did you buy? Well, I went out and I bought Corrientes. 
specifically Corrientes. And I've, I've talked about this a lot and there's, there's several reasons why a they're smaller B they haven't been messed with. And by messed with, I mean, they haven't really as, as a breed, they haven't been pushed hard on corn. They haven't been bred for feedlot performance on high energy feed. Okay. Now, Something else about the Corriente breed that your your listeners may or may not know, the Corrientes are descended from the Creole cattle that Spanish brought over in the early 1500s. So this breed has about 400 years of adaptation and natural selection in the desert Southwest and in Mexico to, to get adapted to this continent, to the climate that we're in, to the types of forage and types of grasses that we have. And I look at the, the kind of environment that those cattle have been in for the last three to 400 years. That's the kind of environment that, that the climate trend is going to make in my part of the world. It's going to be hotter. It's going to be drier. Oh, it's going to yes. be less productive. I need animals that are heat tolerant. I need animals that can thrive on the forage that grows naturally on the range. And after... After 10 years of watching everybody else's black cattle and how they performed on the native range, keeping some over the winter, watching the neighbors over the winter, how much they had to feed, you know, those 12, 1400 pound cows to get them through the winter. And then I, I, I met a good friend. He used to own a ranch here just up the river from me. He since moved back to Texas and he really, he mentored me. He introduced me to Corrientes because he had some. He's from Arizona and he had some and he really liked them. And, you know, we talked about them a lot. And the the strip grazing experiment I mentioned earlier, that that's this guy's Corrientes. So oh, yes. I got to have, you know, really close firsthand experience with him for over six months before I bought mine. You know, going out there every day, moving fence, watching how they responded to the grass, watching how they acted. And every fear that I had about Mexican roping cattle being wild went away. Like we started that project, um, first of end of April, first of May. And by, by the middle of June, I was like, yeah, these, I mean, I had several of them eating out of my hand. There's, there's some more that I could just walk up to scratch their back while they were eating and they wouldn't even react. You know, they got so used to me being out there every day. It was really, man. If you've never been out and moved cattle every day for a month at a time, it's something that everybody should go do. Like they get so used to you. Oh, they do. Yes. They get so used to you and you get so in tune, not just with the animals, but also with what's going on in the land with your grasses and your plants. And, and you're seeing that plant response every day. So, you know, I, I got some firsthand experience with them, learned some more and said, this is what I'm going to do. So I bought Corrientes. They're cheap and they're small. I can run five, six to 800 pound Corrientes in the, on the same grass that I could run 3,000 to 1,200 pound Angus cows. And at the time, I could probably buy like three or four Coriente cows for what I could buy a decent Angus cow. Now, 
I've heard from some really, really smart guys that there's two ways to get good cows. You can build your own or you can buy the ranch they're standing on. Oh, yes. Okay. I hadn't heard that, but I, I have to say that that's pretty good advice the way I see it most of, most of the time. I mean, yeah, you can go to the, you can go buy good cows off another ranch and bring them to your place. You can feed condition and fertility into anything as well. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's finding good cows. Now, what is a good cow? A good cow is a cow that can have a calf on her own, rebreeds every year and doesn't need every any year. medicine, doesn't need me to mess with her, doesn't get ticks, lice, and doesn't even, and doesn't chase the cake truck in the winter. Okay. That's a good cow. Yes. Can you go buy those? Yes, you can. But you can also keep feeding condition and fertility into anything to make up for deficiencies in your management. Yes. And I agree with that. And the the same token, you can't starve a profit into your cow herd either. <laughs> I my heifers bred up uh, my my two year old heifers, my replacements, they bred up really well. And I told somebody the number and he just laughed and he said, You fed them too much. Like I didn't feed him. <laughs> That's kind of the point. Oh, yes. Like they had protein tubs and they got an alfalfa bale every five days. Like that's, that's the program we've been on. Okay. I'll take that breed up number. That'll work for me. You know, even as, even if somebody would say you're feeding them too hard as a joke for a 90 plus percent conception rate, I, I'm, I'm not going to be upset with that, with what I'm feeding. So Building your own good cows is expensive and it's not a, it's not a quick process. Um, and it won't go like you think it does. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. So listening to you, to August, uh, Horseman, he's, he's a big fan of Corrientes and a few others. Corrientes have interest me for a long time, partly because of the price little bit smaller cattle um they should be able to handle the environment they usually come from an environment worse than mine i guess uh, two years ago i bought a small number of corrientes to 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 try i was worried about how wild they would be i didn't know if they would handle my electric fences i just i just didn't know i've never been around them um I love those cows. Now, I did sell a couple because they couldn't figure out how to not jump my fence. But for the most part, they have done wonderful, and I'm really impressed with them. This will be my first calf crop with them out of my bulls because I purchased them bred. So I had some Corriente calves on the ground last year, but this year they'll be bred to my South Pole bulls. So I'm, in, I'm excited to see how those calves and how they grow, how they perform. There's a... Decent variation across my three calf crops. I haven't been necessarily, you know, the most consistent guy with bull selection. I think the the really cold winter that we had, the polar vortex of February 21. Yes. I think that really set a lot of animals back. And maybe, maybe it hit my calf crop a little harder than some of the neighbors because, because I didn't really feed. I mean... Yeah, for that two weeks, I went out and I rolled out bales every day. I rolled out about about a 60 to 70% ration every day for that that two weeks. Because we were covered yes. up with snow and ice and it was oh, below yes. zero. 
I mean, that, that was kind of my worst case scenario. And I planned on that and I'd planned to be able to feed through something like that. So, but I think the last February of 21 and February of 22 were both abnormally cold. And I, I definitely think that kind of maybe set the calves back a little bit. They seem to be doing okay now though. Oh yes. And what are you bringing your Corrientes to? The first couple of years we bred to Angus, um, bred to some Angus bulls, you know, like you, I bought, I bought a bunch of them that were bred or had calf at side just cause that was, that was the timing of when I was ready to buy and what fit the program. Right. And it's those right now that it's those heifers that are retained that were someone else's breeding decision. I bought bread, whatever. It's those heifers right now. They're ranch raised. I mean, I have no problem calling them ranch raised because they've been here their whole life, but I didn't breed them. Right. The crop that I bred, those are all looking good. So Brian, you were saying about your, um, cat Corientes, you bred them to Angus. How'd those calves turn out? Well, like I was saying, I, you know, there's some, there's some variation in the calf crop and, you know, study them a little more. I, I, I can figure out what went wrong, but you know, that was the decision that was made years ago. So I've kind of got to live with it, work around it. Um, lately we've been, I, we've got some calves that are bred to, uh, flex the influence Simital bulls that we got out of Georgia. Um, my buddy got him. A friend of mine offered him to me for sale and I wasn't in a position where I could buy him. So I was like, Hey, Hey friend, you should buy these bulls. Oh, we're going to be running cows yes. together. You should buy these bulls cause they're great bulls. And I think they'd be a great addition to your program. And by the way, maybe can I use one of them every once in a while? Oh, yeah. so, there you go. Yeah. He, he's been really good to me about, uh, about let me use bulls. We, I mean, we run cattle together too. So it's his cows. Yes. They're going to be covering some of his cattle they're covering too. So, uh, we've got, we've got these four really nice Simital bulls that are grass developed, 100% forage developed, never been pushed on grain. I turn out a black bull and I watch them, you know, they, they go out and they're interested for two weeks and it seems like they work for two weeks and then they just fall down in condition and go hide in the trees and don't do anything for, you know, two months. These Rocco face Simital bulls, we put them out and they went to work. And they stayed checked in, attentive with cows the whole season. Oh, yes. Didn't get hurt. Like, they they were checked in. We could t I could tell they were doing their job. So about two weeks after we turned out those bulls, um, I got a hold of a half Mashona, half South Pole yearling bull. Oh, okay. And I turned him out. So uh, his name is Carlos, and uh, he's the standing... He's my bull now. He's my, my standing bull here. And, uh, he's just been kind of hanging out and trying to keep him alive all winter. So, <laughs> um, this year we're looking to, we're looking to go back with, with the same, with the same Simitals and Carlos, my Mashona South Pole bull. Now on those Simital bulls, are they a high percentage Fleck V or are they just general Simital? Uh, Gosh, I, I wouldn't know off the top of my head. I'd probably have to go back and look at papers. I, I remember, quote, Fleck V influenced Simital. And oh, yeah. You know, everybody thinks Simital and they think, you know, this big, giant, monstrous thing. Well, right. That's right. not what these are. These are very moderate framed. In fact, I'd say they were, they were smaller than the typical Angus bull used in this area. Oh, yes. A frame smaller yeah. 
but a condition higher, all right? Like seven pounds of sugar yes. in a five pound sack. I mean, they, right. They were beefy, right. they were muscly, they had great structure and they were short in stature, which is, which is the direction to go. And I, the reason, the reason that, I asked about Fleck V is I saw, I've seen Fleck V's always interest me. And I see a lot more grass-based or grass-developed Fleck V as opposed to Simitol, which doesn't mean, I mean, Fleck V is a, a subset of Simitol. So when I say Fleck V, we're still talking Simitol, but just a subset. So that's the reason I had asked about the Fleck V influence there. Right. It, the goal is to is to have a little bit bigger of a frame and hang a little bit more mass on it. Mm. You know, without without getting the influence from something that's really been driven hard on high energy feed. And so you've used them last year. Do you have calves on the ground out of them? Uh, ask me again in a week. Oh, okay. <laughs> Calving season for me starts next week. Uh, I do. Well, um, uh, mine does too next week. I did. I did use them on a set of cows uh, that are with the main herd that were a fall breed. So I did a 45 oh, day okay. fall breed. So I do have some calves out of those Simitol bulls. They're just, they're six months out of sync with everything else. Or oh, like yeah. Three months out of sync with everything else. But, you know, I, and I don't think that's going to be, you know, that's not really a bad thing. You know, I might, I might even shift towards more of a later in the summer or fall breeding, honestly, just to, just to keep that, just to get that calving season a little bit later. Oh, yes. And why, why would you push it back later? The gurus that I've learned from and listened to that I consider to be excellent, excellent stockmen, they all say to calve on green grass. Well, that's also, you know, that first three or four months of lactation, that's when your cow's nutritional requirement is going to be the highest. Okay. When do I have the best grass? Let's match up the cow's nutritional requirements to when my resource is at its best. Like that's the number, that's the driver right there. Because yes. any other time of year, I'm going to be leaving if I calve anywhere else, but when I'm on my best forage, then I'm going to be having to supplement that nutritional deficiency in my cows. And when you don't grow it, you got to buy it. And that yes. costs money. I am thinking about pushing my cows a little bit later. And partly for the same reasons. Um, I'm Kevin. I've got green grass out there, just not quite as tall as I want. Um, and I was hoping to get, I was hoping to be in that fast rotation, good growth out there in the pastures let my cows recover from winter just a little bit. And so my timing was April 15th. However, this year we're running a little bit behind and a little bit behind in my mind, but I can think back to other years and we were kind of in the same position. So now I'm thinking maybe I need to push my cows more into May to Kev. I think looking at, you know, April, May calving, the way we're looking at it, maybe we're basing it on outdated climate information because it does seem like it does seem like spring is coming later yes and it seems like summer and summer and fall are lasting longer it's almost like the seasons are kind of shifting on the calendar a little bit if we are if the climate is changing the way the majority of scientists say it's changing okay 
we both need to be looking at our, our operations and thinking about how things would look if we were 200 miles south and west. 200 miles southwest and drier and hotter. Yes, it is. Yeah. Because I think they look 30 year data, 30 years of data that my dad's gathered on a ranch. We, you can go on Oklahoma Mesonet and look at data. You can go to the climate, uh, there's National Climate Center. Forget the name right now. But the trend is pretty clear. It's getting warmer and getting drier in the plains. And that line yes. of dry, hot is moving east, unfortunately. Yes, sadly it is. Jumping back to your your calves just a little bit, how do you market your steer calves or your bull calves, however you manage that? The goal is to go You're holding... to consumer. Yes. With, with, with the beef, with beef, okay? When I was running all the numbers and burned up a couple legal pads and maybe even melted down a tablet, trying to run all the numbers and a stock flow for this, this project, this operation, whatever the hell I'm doing. Um, in 2019, I realized that there's basically two value points for a cow calf operator to exit the cattle business with that animal. Okay. Somewhere around 400 pounds, 60 days weaned with two rounds of shots. That's going to get you two bucks any day, any barn, anywhere in the country. Right now it's bringing close to $3. I mean, there's good money. Yeah. There's good money in that. You go past that 400 pound mark. Okay. Now as a cow calf guy, you're competing against the backgrounders. that are feeding subsidized corn or they're getting waste hay or they're getting cheap distillers grains from a distillery or an ethanol plant. Okay. That's what you're competing against. You're competing against their cost of gain that they have commoditized and they know what it is to the fraction of a penny cow calf guy on grass are you going to compete with him probably not so 400 pounds before you have to compete in that market against a subsidized cost of gain animal that's a value point to exit the other value point to exit is direct consumer anywhere yes. else along that line you're either going to give, you're going to give it away to the packer. If you raise it to 800 pounds, anywhere else, between over 400 pounds, you're competing against subsidized cost of gain. And if yes. you take it and if, yeah. and if you're benefiting from that, fine, if that fits your business model, fine, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk bad on you. I'm just saying that the model that works for me is to not compete against that. Right. And you got to figure out the model that works for your operation, but. Yeah, I, I can see both of those. So you're attempting to market all your steer calves direct to consumer? Yes. And that's a year behind my replacement heifer program. I made the decision real early on that the steers that I did not breed, I got rid of. Yes. So all yeah. the steers that have been born on the ranch that I didn't breed are gone. The only steers that are left on the ranch are ones that I bred. Because I, I, I have in mind, and I haven't talked about this publicly, I have in mind that I have two lines of beef. I have the lower line, which is the cull cows. Yes. And that line eventually goes away, or maybe I have to bring it back later because I have to buy in some replacements. Then the stuff that I bred and raised and packaged, that's going to be the higher label. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, again, we're back to, you know, 
some of this hearsay stuff. I feel like the agricultural businesses that will be successful for the next 10 to 20 years are the businesses that are doing a good job of telling their story. They're the businesses that are going to be connecting directly with the consumer. You know that there's something that I love to say all the time. You've probably heard it at least once in your life. Shake the hand that feeds you. And doesn't matter if you're a beef eater or a vegan. It's an applicable statement. Okay. If you will, if people out there want to be vegan, fine. Great. I support your right to choose. I would just really, really encourage you to look into your food chain, to look into your food supply chain and go backwards through it and go shake the hand of the guy that's raising your vegan food and understand the steps between you and him. I think that's really good advice for whoever. And it, it's a, it sounds simple, right? It's pretty elegant. It's pretty simple. It, 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 it does. It's a nice, um, deep statement in a very simple statement. And it should stay simple because if the supply chain to put that food in front of you is too complicated for you to understand it, you shouldn't be eating that product. Like right. that's and kind of a mic I've drop moment right there. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I mentioned earlier when we were talking off the recording was about um, processed foods. And I'd love to, I eat, consume too much of it, but yeah, that, that gets you going back to where you should be about all your food. I can feel a difference in my body. I mean, maybe half of the food I eat is clean food, not processed. When I'm eating good, clean food, I feel good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I eat a handful of Cheez-Its. Slice of processed cheese. My body knows that. My brain wants it. My brain really wants it. My body's kind of like, does. you know, this isn't the best thing for you to be putting in me, but I know it tastes great, so I'm going to accept it anyway. Like, the pleasure centers in our brain are just so overloaded with sugar that that's all they're craving. And you start kicking a lot of that out of your diet, like especially sugar. Sugar is, I try to absolutely minimize my intake of refined white sugar. Molasses, okay, maybe a little bit less. Honey, honey I think is kind of okay. Honey doesn't mess with me like refined white sugar does. Oh, yes. That is one thing my wife and I've been talking about is reducing that sugar in our diet. We have way too much. And they put it in everything. Like Oh, they do. Yes. Like there's almost there's three ingredients that are in most food, and you could get down to like two ingredients that are in every food. Salt and sugar. Why is salt and sugar in every food? Well, because we're just these dumb apes that are hardwired to want salt salt salty sweet flavor. Food scientists know that like, and it's like every year they just keep upping that threshold of, of what's acceptable for salt and sugar in a food, because we just keep getting that much more and more used to it. I think average person eats, oh, yes. eats probably three times the amount of sodium they should a day. And nobody puts salt on their food because it's already in the food. <laughs> it's already there. Yes. You know, when you yeah. unprocessed food or minimally processed food, clean food, it won't have a bunch of salt in it. And you may need to actually put a little bit of salt on it, which isn't a bad thing. No, I, I totally agree with you there. I'm not doing a very good job. I'm working on it. But um, 
And I, and I say that and, and I probably have a better diet than most of my coworkers because I am eating beef we raised here, lamb we raised here. Um, my garden's kind of in a state of flux right now, but hopefully we get some stuff growing out there this year. You know, I, I appreciate, I appreciate that point because you know, yeah, I do talk a lot. Shake the hand that feeds you. Well, don't eat processed food. Eat grass-fed beef. I, I've still been to McDonald's in the last month. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I, I'm not ashamed to say that. Like, there's certain parts of the world that, yeah, we can take advantage of some conveniences, but as long as we're working to do better, I'm going to do a little bit better than I did last month with eating processed food and eating sugar and eating carbs, I'm going to do a little bit better next month yes. and the month after that and the month after that. And you don't change a river by dumping rocks in it. You change a river by dumping small rocks in it. You throw enough pebbles in a river, you get to change the course of the river over time. Yes. I like that Justin Rhodes on his videos, he's always talking about 1% better today. Just do a little bit better each day. If you do 1%. That's my goal. If you do 1% better every day in three months, you'll be a hundred percent better. Yes. Yeah. So, so obviously, you know, right off, I failed on that 1% better each day, but I'm working on it. Forward progress. <laughs> yes. Yes. So jumping back to your cattle, so working on direct consumer with your steers and then you're raising your heifers, um, what, what are your goals as you're going forward? You've said some of them because you want to process them or get them all direct to consumer, but what are your, some of your goals for the future with your breeding and your program? The, the direction I'm going with the cattle program and the breeding is to develop like to have an, a cow size of right at a thousand pounds. So we need to bring that, we need to bring the cow size up a little bit, which is what I've been hoping to do with, you know, the, the Angus genetics, which I think some of them might've worked. Some of them maybe didn't, uh, hopefully the Semitol will, will bring the frame that I'm looking for. You know, I'll be watching yeah. those, you know, the, some, some of the Semitol calves that I have this grow this summer and see how they do and, you know, see the babies, see how they're going to, how they're going to look when they start coming out. Um, but to add, add a little bit more frame, want to keep, you know, the disease pest resistance. Um, I did, I did bring them in and I did give them a pour on for lice and ticks, uh, back in, back in February, middle of end of February. I think that's more of a comfort thing. Uh, you know, yeah. Okay. Ticks can cost gain enough ticks, drink blood, cost gain, whatever. I get that. Lice, I think lice is more of a cosmetic issue. Um, I didn't treat last year. Um, and I just watched them and there was, there's a bunch that weren't even affected by the lice. Of course, I recorded all those numbers. Oh, yes. And this year we could have preg checked the older cows on who had lice and who didn't. Oh, yes. The cattle with lice were not pregnant. The cows without mm -hmm. were generally we're generally bred. I mean, there's like a 90, 95% correlation there, but we went ahead and we, you know, treated anyway, just cause we had them there. Um, but I want an animal that I don't have to treat. Like none of the, none of the, 
none of the young stock showed any signs of having any lice pressure on them at all. We didn't see any ticks when we had them in the chute. So I'm pretty happy with that. You know, it's just a, just a few problem cows that will, will get cold out over the next couple of years and hopefully eventually just have a program where we don't have to do, Reagan, just get rid of the porons. That would be ideal. Um, oh yes. Yo, I'm, I'm shooting for a herd fertility of somewhere around 85%. You don't more than that might've fed them a little too much less than that. Well, you're not feeding them enough. So somewhere around 85, 90% fertility is, is kind of what I want to look for, um, going down the line. Um, hopefully we can do better than that, but, uh, I think as long as we can do 85%, I'll feel pretty good about the program. Sounds like excellent goals there with your, your breeding objectives going forward. And I, I think also at some point, you know, I may be able to market some replacement heifers or maybe even some bulls, you know, some, just some composite right. bulls that, you know, out of my ranch raised genetics. Right. That's, that's working for that environment. Yeah. You know, I, I totally get that. I feel like people get really hung up on breed a lot. And, oh, yes. You know, when you get hung up on a breed, you start to overlook things like heterosis and hybrid vigor. And, you know, so how long do you have to work with a, with a closed gene pool before it becomes its own unique breed? You know, we've got all these different breeds of cattle in the United States. How many of them have we developed here? I mean, okay, we don't, we've, we don't necessarily need to go down the list, but you know, over time, we've been pretty prolific with breeds being named. What I'm thinking of is, you know, like the Herefords come from the Hereford area of England. Oh, well, yes. The breeds are generally named after where they're from geographically, because over time, the cattlemen of those areas bred cattle that worked in those areas yes and so different different genetics different bloodlines can metabolize certain forages and survive in certain environments better or worse than others and maybe it just so happened that angus happened to be the breed that did kind of okay everywhere but did great when you fed it corn and soybeans and that's why we see angus everywhere and i think as 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 people start to change their farming practices, we start farming more food instead of feed, returning animals to the land, give up some of the corn, soybean, wheat, cotton oscillations that we have and go back to more native grass. We're going to need different cattle for the future. We're going to need cattle that can work on grass. And I'm not saying that I'm trying to be, you know, be the, be the guy that's going to have the best bull. Maybe I'll have one that's okay that somebody will want to give me some money for. Maybe I'll end up in that seed stock business. It's a direction that I'm not going to close off, but it's not something that I'm like driving everything towards. Because I'm just a little guy. Right. And yes. And, and on those breeds, I love breeds of animals. I love their history. It's interesting how much variation in some of the breeds and and how we've made all the breeds look just alike. And there's, it, if we're making them all perform and look just alike, then why do we need different breeds? And to jump over into another tangent that, well, my hair sheep flock, 
I've mainly been breeding Codalins. Um, I've used some registered sires, but then we went to a closed flock basically, um, just because I thought it was more cost effective for what I was doing. And I'm not opposed to bringing some outside genetics in there. And I'm thinking about maybe some Dorper genetics in there to get a little bit more meat on those lambs. Um, and I, and I struggle a little bit with that because I love breeds so much that I'm like, oh, I like having this breed, but really as a commercial producer, we want that heterosis from, from unrelated breeds in there and, and maximize it with the three breed rotation or something along that line. And, and to be honest, that's tough for me because I'm like, oh, I like having this breed, even if I'm not a seed stock producer. I like, I like that. Um, so that's a discussion I'm having in my head right now about the direction of our hair sheep. Um, I can keep rams again this year and continue or I bring in some. And if I bring in some, what am I bringing into my flock? Well, I'd like to have some bigger, some more meat on those lambs. Those, those pounds always come at a cost. You know, what are you, what else, what are you going to give up in the animal? What are you going to give up in performance to get that? Yes. Yeah. Well, um, I think dorpers, when you consider where they come from, uh, you're giving up some parasite resistance when, if you're just talking about those sheep, but yeah, there's a trade-off in everything we're doing. Um, we have to figure out what works best for us. Brian, really have enjoyed the conversation thus far, but we're going to go ahead and move into the overgrazing section. And for the overgrazing section today, we're going to talk a little bit about your non-traditional revenue streams that you're, I don't know if they're established or you're working on establishing, but I know from your website, you've got the landtrust.com and the hipcamp.com. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Well, yeah. Um... I've been, I've been on hip camp for a couple of years now and I don't really push that. Just kind of let it grow organically. Um, I've, I've met some really interesting people, but it's been difficult to really see that as an income source. It's probably cost me more money to go over there and maintain that site in diesel fuel, just you know, oh, mowing yes. it twice a year, uh, than I've collected off the rent fees for the last two years. So there's that. Uh, but you know, I've met some really interesting people and it's, it's not something I'm going to quit doing. It's something I might like to do a little bit more of if I get some funds available to, uh, like improve a few roads here and there so I can open up a few more sites. Cause that's kind of the issue. Yeah. Like, you know, you want to open up a place to the public. Well, just about anybody needs to be able to get there. Well, I'm sorry, your Honda Civic is going to make it two miles back to the spot where I've really got an awesome pond, you know? Right. So it, that's kind of a thing. I, I think they've got some new controls out to where like, you know, you can restrict it to high clearance four by fours or whatever. So it's just not something I've, I've really looked at a lot. Um, I know there are some people that have had great success with it that are doing really well with their listings on hip camp. Um, but they're also kind of either they're, they're right off a major travel route. Yes. I mean, the red Hills should be known for their scenic beauty, but the interstates are 200 miles North or 200 miles South. Right. It comes here. Yeah. Um, with the land trust thing. Um, so the deer hunting on a property I'm, I've managed separately. Like I've got, 
Oh, okay. I've, I've got several different deals going on with deer hunters. When the land trust folks approached me, they're like, you know, with their pitch, that was the first thing I told them. They're like, you know, deer hunting's off the table because that's already managed, you know, in another way with long-term arrangements with, you know, people that I, that I vetted personally that I trust or I've known for, how like 40 some years. Anyway, so they're like, well, what about everything else? I said, okay, well, let's talk about everything else. And, and Tom came down and rode around with me for a day, looked at it, made it, made my land trust site and sent it to me and said, this is what we can offer you. Would you like us to go live with this? Like, that looks good. So, um, I've only actually had one booking through land trust and it was also coincidentally my guests first time booking through land trust. It was awkward, but not uncomfortable. It was just kind of like, okay, I, this is my first time. It's your first time. Let's just kind of go our way through this. So, um, it wasn't a bad experience. Put a little, put a few bucks in my pocket. Um, and I already, they wanted to rebook for next year. And I have, I have two hunts already booked for next January. Oh, for, yes. For bird hunting. Um, yes. I've had some people we have, we also have like, we've got camping listed on land trust. We've got, uh, backpacking, we've got hiking, we've got biking, uh, stargazing, we, we beaver viewing, um, bird viewing, we have all kinds of stuff on there. Just haven't really had very many takers on it yet. Yeah, I saw that beaver viewing. I thought, oh, interesting. That's for us. The beavers are a nuisance, but that would be a way to to um, make them more valuable. But our beavers don't. The way our land is, it, they're not doing anything that looks real pretty. Well, the creek that's quote infested with beavers, and I say that with a <laughs> yes. smile on my face. <laughs> uh, yes, I like having it infested with beavers. Yes, we're three years in to the worst drought that's ever been recorded since they've been keeping weather records here. I have more water. There is more water in that Creek than there has ever been. Oh yes. The water level is higher and is flowing more gallons per minute or more, you know, CFS than it ever has. Yes. I'll take that. That's, yeah. That's some pretty good work by beavers. Uh, yes. my buddy, my buddy was just out last weekend and he threw a he, th he loves to fish. Like he'll just get on his four wheeler with a fishing pole and a cooler of beer and be gone all day on the ranch. And I'll just get pictures all day of all the fish that he catches in these weird little holes on the creek or this little thing behind oh, the yes. pond or you know, this other part of the pond that I haven't been to in two years. Like he's he's nuts. So he went to this like beaver pond and he pulled out a bass that was probably two and a half pounds. Oh yes. Out of a beaver pond. Yeah. On the kind of, yeah. I mean, well, th not a trophy fish, but very notable for where it was. Well, yeah. Yeah. We are having, or I'm seeing more beaver evidence in our general area. Um, we have some beaver traffic up in one of our ponds. Now, a half mile over, I'm seeing, seeing some damage they're doing on some trees there. They're, they're going to block the road one day because that tree's going to fall across the road. But we're seeing more beavers, which I like seeing more beavers. If they don't cut down the trees, I like, you know. Unfortunately, you can't go out, put a yellow ribbon on it and say, don't cut this one down. It doesn't work that way, does it? No. No. You pretty much have to build Fort Knox around a tree to keep them out of there if they <laughs> want that tree. Yes. Yes. 
they are persistent. So do you see your land trust or your hip camp? You mentioned a little bit about your hip hip camp needing a little bit better roads or restrictions, but how do you see that going in the future? Do you see it growing into anything that you could hang your hat on and say, hey, here's some income coming in, or is it just going to be just something side, something you can enjoy a little bit? I think maybe, you know, land trust might be kind of like some piggy bank, some rainy day vacation money. Um, yes. I don't ever necessarily see land trust as being something that I can, that'll allow me to quit my day job, so to speak. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, like, like everybody else podcasting, hopefully at least I want to catch enough sponsors and get enough, you know, supporters that want to subscribe either, you know, through, through my hosting service or through Patreon that, you know, that, that maybe helps pay a bill or two. Um, but for the most part, uh, custom grazing pays the bills and I kind of subsidize my cow herd a little bit and hopefully soon the, uh, the ground, the beef pipeline my my beef supply pipeline will be starting to open up and be jammed full of product and that will start generating income as well oh, very good yes i'm in a very low population density area and i'm off the beaten track i mean if the interstate isn't very far away or you know oklahoma city or tulsa or dallas or shreveport you know if you're not far from a big major metro area yeah, look at land trust. Look at some of these hip camp programs. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of like Harvest Host is another one. Um, Airbnb. You know, there's tremendous demand for Airbnbs, especially if you don't put a camera inside. Uh, there's there's tons of opportunities out there that are enabled by the internet to allow those of us in rural areas with resources, with a spare cabin, with a campsite, with a cool spot down by a creek, with pretty birds to look at, with a spot way out in the country away from city lights that we can offer to these people, that they can come out and we can share it with them. And it's a way to help help us connect with the public. Maybe they're not necessarily a consumer of my beef, but almost everybody in this country is a consumer of beef through the year. So if I yeah. can show them a little bit about, hey, maybe you don't buy my product, but this is what I do, and this is where this is where I feel cows should raise, should live. Cows should stand on grass and eat grass, not stand on dirt and eat corn out of concrete. You know, every little bit of that I that we can do, I think we should be taking those opportunities to do it, whether or not it's, you know whether it's a thing that's really going to show up on the balance sheet or in the bank balance, you know, probably not, but there's, there's benefits that that kind of public outreach has. You know, we've, we've got very much. So we got an yeah. event coming up here at the end of the month. Kind of it's strangest thing you've probably ever heard of. So I open up the ranch crossed about seven and a half miles of my trails and roads to a group of bicyclists. Oh, yes. So there's a, it's, it's about a little over 200 kilometers. They start up in a town called Pratt and they ride down on country roads. They, they cut across another friend's ranch north and west of me, come down through Sun City and they come out through seven and a half miles of my ranch and they head off towards town. They go through another friend's ranch, hit town and then back up to Pratt on, on back roads. Oh, yes. five miles. Every year I get asked. Why do you do that? Why do you want those people here? 
This year, they've got 325 people signed up for this ride. That's 325 people that are health conscious, that are very aware of what yes. they put in their bodies and how, and how their bodies perform. These are people that are out on, I mean, yeah, there's the group of guys that are head down that come by in the first hour and they're just flying. And then you have the guys that are having right. fun. And so what I'm getting at is there's a lot of folks that, that probably have no idea where their food comes from, that have no idea what we do out here. And it's just a little bit of education, a little bit of sharing that. Like I make them come down and ride right past the beaver ponds and they have to get off their bicycles oh, yes. and cross the creek. Like, it, it, oh yeah, it's pretty cool to see. Um, but being able to connect with some of those people and just show them like, Hey, you know, these are my cows. This is how I grow cows. This is what, this is what should be, this is what could be going on when you drive past that pasture and you don't see a cow. This is why. So every chance we get to educate somebody on our, on our land management ethic or ecological ethic, or just you know, our, our, our principles of good stockmanship and build those bridges. It's, it's important to do. I agree. We're, you know, you, you said about shake the hand that feeds you. It's, you know, each generation's I, I'm, I work in education and I work in a rural community. So, so it's a little bit different than if you're going to Tulsa, but still yet we have kids that no longer can say that they go to their grandparents' farm. They're, they're just so far removed from it. Um, so any of that outreach, I think, is great. And that's one area we have not done much about, but I, I really would like to advance on and get more people out here. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do either. Well, you mentioned earlier, you know, as we look towards the future, the the people that tell their story and get their story out to the consumer, builds those relationships, will be successful. You know, not all of us, sometimes we struggle with that marketing story portion. And I know I've got the podcast and online presence, but that's that's not one of my strengths. I have to, to work for that. And and I'm, I'm attempting to get better, and I, I will improve, but... You know, that's just another one of those legs on the stool as a rancher that you've got to develop and you don't have to be good about it, but you've got to be out there doing it. You don't have to be good. You don't have to be great. You just have to try and not give. Yes. And, and that's kind of my motto with the podcast. I'm not very good at this, but I get people on here that's very knowledgeable. Don't listen to listen to me. Listen to my guest. <laughs> so I just jumped in and said, here we go. That's kind of how I do it, or I try anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, Brian, it's time for our famous four questions. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests. And um, I stole that off of Bigger Pockets podcast. Our very first question, what is your favorite grazing grass-related book or resource? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I'm going to go with Holistic Management 3rd Edition. I think you're the third week in a row we've had that answer, the holistic management. Really? Yes, we we get that one. You know, we kind of go in spurts. It's kind of interesting with the podcast. Uh, I'll have on a few people, and in a row we'll get Greg Judy books, or we'll get um, Quality Pastures, or 
um, some of these others, but like right now we're in this holistic management phase. I'm, I think you're the third one in a row. I'd have to check for sure, but I'm pretty sure. It's, I mean, if I was going to say that there was one book to read that would, that would help somebody like get on a path to, to be where I'm at, it would be holistic management, third edition, or whatever the current, whatever the current one is. And the whatever thing, the current is, the whole thing, not just the part about how to manage grass, but the whole thing about, you know, holistic planning and, you know, having a goal and a mission and a vision and understanding the why of doing what you're doing. That's just as important as understanding how many pounds of grass you have per acre. Oh, yes. Yeah. Definitely an excellent choice there. Our, our second question, what's your favorite tool on your ranch? Yeah, this is a tough one. Maybe. We'll see. Ooh. Man, it's kind of a toss-up between my fence tester and my grazing stick. I can see both. It's it's always interesting to hear answers. Um, tell us just a little bit why you your fence tester. Make sure the fence is good and hot. And does it simple? The grazing stick. You know, when you've been kind of doing it for fifteen years, you develop an eye. I don't do a whole lot of clipping and weighing of grass anymore. Maybe I should. I probably, I haven't done it in a couple of years and I do it as, as kind of a truth. Like, am I telling the truth to myself? Am I lying to myself? Mm-hmm. Most of the time now I just kind of calibrate myself off the grazing stick. And that hasn't failed me for the last several years. That's so been working pretty Hell well. Yes. You know, so the grazing stick, grazing stick is the first verification on the eyeball. And then the cut and weigh and measure, that's the truth. That's the real truth. Oh, I, yes. Am I interpreting the grazing stick and my eyeballs correctly? We're going to go clip and weigh and dry some down and see what it does. Very good. Very good. Our third question, what would you tell someone just getting started? You know, that's one of the ones I ask all the time. And I never, <laughs> I never think about answering it. Uh, what would I tell somebody starting out? Probably don't. Uh, but that's, that's. I mean, that's obviously kind of a flippant, sarcastic answer. Yes. I would tell somebody to make sure that they understand their market and who they're selling to. I feel like somebody trying to get in the cattle business in 2023 that doesn't have a good understanding of the market and who's buying and they're, and they're going to play the commodity game. I feel like uh, they're setting themselves up for long-term failure. I, I just feel like the commodity game is so rigged now that the, the barrier to entry is so large. You're, you're either going to over leverage everything you have and work for free for 20 years to try to pay it off, or you're just going to go broke in five years. You know, the next cattle cycle, the next oh, drought yeah. cycle, you're not going to make it through. Yeah. Begin with the end in mind. So you consider where you're going, what you're going to do other than that commodity market. I mean, I, I'm sure there's tons of guys out there that are like, yeah, I want to be a farmer. Okay. Well, go spend a couple million bucks. To buy 400 acres in Iowa, a John Deere X9, a 500 horsepower tillage tractor, and some new tools, and go for it. Get right after it. If you really want to be thinking about starting up a farm in 2023, maybe thinking about what can I grow and add value to on farm and sell as a product. You know, and whatever whatever makes yes. yeah. and whatever makes sense for for whatever makes sense for you. I mean. Right, right. You know, I, I have a friend up here that's a wheat farmer. 
I was up northwest up me and he called me like a couple months ago and I said, Hey, if I had some wheat flour, would you buy it from me? And he said, Well, we're just gonna maybe sell it in in like quart jars. I'm like, dude, I'll buy it if you put it in a plastic bag. I will <laughs> buy it because you're selling it to me. I will buy it from you because you will tell me everything you spray on it and why. Oh, yes. And I will pay the same price per pound for your flour that I would pay at the grocery store. I would pay more. I would pay more for flour if I could go shake the hand of the person that grew it and he would tell me everything he sprayed on it and why he sprayed that shit on it. And he milled it in his kitchen. I'll go buy flour from that man for twice the price that it's on a store shelf for and be happy doing it. Something like that. Like here in Southern Kansas, we can grow wheat, we can grow barley, we can grow hops. How come there aren't more guys growing, making their own beer? Like the whole reason we started to brew beer is because that was a way to preserve the nutritional, the, the nutrition in the grain for a longer time than the grain would stay in a silo. And you leave grain in a silo long enough, it rots. Oh, yes. Let's make it into beer. Beer is liquid bread, right? I mean, there's a reason yes. we call it liquid yeah. bread. So, like, I wonder why more more guys aren't looking at stuff like, you know, hey, maybe I'll buy a $500 flour mill that's, you know, just homeowner grade and plant one acre to wheat or treat one acre differently. And that's the acre that I'm going to cut and I'm going to bag and I'm going to mill in a kitchen and I'm going to sell to people in a plastic bag or in a mason jar. Like, oh, yes. Yeah. We need more of that. We need less and, people and I- selling soap at the farmer's market. And more people selling stuff they actually grew and added value to. Uh, I agree with you. I would, I would pay extra for the um, flour, like you said. I can shake the hand of the person who grew it. Can tell me what was put on it and why, because I don't want any extra pesticides, etc., put on it. <laughs> and you're right. We don't see that at farmers markets, but it looks like to me there'd be a market for it. And it, it's kind of like what's happened in beef. You know, the guys that grow that stuff, a lot of them went to college. A lot of them listen to their co-op. They listen to the wheat board. Like the wheat board's not going to tell them to go buy a mill and mill wheat in their kitchen and sell it in mason jars. They're not going right. to do that. You know, and granted, it, will it work if every wheat farmer does it? No. Well, that's not the point. Yeah, but, I mean, by the time everybody right. else is doing it, the early adopters need to be doing something else. Yes. And lastly, Brian? Where can others find out more about you? Oh, well, redhillsrancher.com. I'm also on all social media as Red Hills Rancher. You can find my podcast, which is called Ranching Reboot, on uh, whatever podcast platform you're listening to this podcast on. We don't (laughs) need to say where it's available. If somebody can listen to this one, they can find mine. So I'm called Ranching Reboot. Uh, I'm Red Hills Rancher, otherwise known as Brian Alexander. If you want to, you're... Facebook feed to be filled with libertarian propaganda. Send me a friend request. If you want to see what's going on in the ranch and follow the podcast, uh, follow Red Hills Rancher. Right. Thank you, Brian. We've enjoyed it. I think our listeners will enjoy it. And thank you for coming on and spending a little bit of time with us. Well, it's a pleasure, Cal. And I sure appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity. It's been a lot of fun today. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers and every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. 
I've enjoyed today's conversation and hope you've enjoyed it as well. If you would like to continue on the conversation, visit the Grazing Grass community at community.grazinggrass.com or go to thegrazinggrass.com and click on the community link. You can find the Grazing Grass podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So if you haven't subscribed to us on YouTube, we encourage you to go over and subscribe. We will be releasing episodes over there. We also have a lot of episodes we haven't released that we're going to get over there as well. And if you find something valuable, please share it. We appreciate you sharing about our podcast and getting the word out. Are you a grass farmer? Would you be interested in sharing about your journey? If so, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. There's a short form you fill out, and we'll be in touch. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them. And we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. Until next time, keep on grazing grass.